time for swordplay. Alex, scientists from the U.S. and China have successfully created half-monkey, half-human embryos aimed at one day producing human organs for transplant patients. Yeah, Nick, the lead scientist in charge of the project on the U.S. side said that he would like to remain anonymous for the care and safety of himself and his half-human mutants. For now, he would like to be known simply as Professor X. Oh, there it is. Old 90s throwback there. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode, the final episode of this season... We deal with the subject of theosis. That's right. Episode 26 for season three. But overall, Nick, this is episode 90. Can you believe we've done 90 of these things? The 90th. (laughs) I mean, uh, most of our episodes are over an hour. So, I mean, we've done over 100 hours of in-depth Bible commentary. Oof. Yay, us. That's right. Patting patting myself on the shoulder here. (laughs) A couple of nerds. That's right. (laughs) The podcast was almost called Bible Buddies. But it was, it's called Swordplay now. <laughs> and I'm glad we call. went in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to take a break for a few months, but we'll come back for season four. And uh, we'll remind the audience at the end of the episode about that. We need you to send in, in the meantime, all of your questions. We want to put together an entire Q&A episode. So we'll remind you that later. For now, let's jump into the topic of theosis. Well, Nick, uh, can you... Talk to us a little bit. What is theosis? What does that word even mean? Yeah, so, um, I mean, this is a, it can be a a slippery subject, um, and that's because uh, a guy by the name of Vladimir Karloff wrote a paper about theosis in patristic writings, and he said that there's no unilateral consensus among early Christian authors about the precise meaning of theosis. And in fact, the first theological definition that we have, uh, Karloff writes, doesn't appear until the 6th century in Pseudo-Dionysius. The notion of deification, Karloff continues, or more accurately, the deification theme in the first five centuries of Christian theology, theology had a very marginal character. Often the discourse on deification, which is, by the way, another word for theosis, was contextualized within the development of the Trinitarian and Christological controversies, and theosis was addressed on the periphery of such theological issues as the full divinity of Christ, immortality, and eternal life, the image of God in the human being, sanctification, redemption, sacramental theology, and general and individual eschatology. So, uh, it's... There are various definitions of exactly what it, it's kind of like. Well, what is theosis? Well, who are you asking, right? Um, and if we could distill it down, and and several writers have done this, theosis, also called deification, is simply means at its core sharing in God's reality through Christ. Uh, it is redeemed humanity's participation in the life of God. It involves uh, a transformation of 
the uh, human nature so that it is able to participate with the divine nature in glory. Um, it is not, and, and we need to draw clear lines here, it is not uh, fusion, where the, the human nature is absorbed into the divine nature, uh, while it is also sometimes called uh, theopoiesis, uh, which is translated as uh, to be made gods or properly deification, uh, what we're not saying is that humans become gods. That's, uh, you find that in, in certain uh, r- religious contexts, but that is not properly what was understood concerning this subject in uh, most of church history. Uh, succinctly, so uh, Kyle Strobel in one of his papers on the subject says, succinctly, theosis is for believers to become by grace what the Son of God is by nature and to receive the blessings that are his by rights as undeserved gifts. It is a transforming union of the believer with God and Christ, usually, if inadequately, translated as divinization and deification. Uh, so, whew, I mean, it's it can be a weighty thing <laughs> when you start wading into the waters, but um, I, I do suppose it's related to, to certain other elements, right, Alex? Yeah, well, here's the thing. We're going to see theosis... Uh, in the Old Testament, in the Second Temple era, between the Old and New Testament, in the New Testament, and in the early church fathers. But you're right, as we get into some of these um, eras, especially the early church fathers, they approach it from different angles. Uh, We've mentioned theosis on the podcast before, and usually when I'm mentioning theosis, I'm referring to the idea found especially in our New Testament, that when we are resurrected in our resurrection bodies, those bodies will be different than the human body we have right now, the earthly, fleshly body. It'll be a body, but it'll be a different kind of body. And we'll look at all those verses just in a brief sort of survey fashion. So theosis, when I tell people what theosis is, it has to do with, uh, in, in simplest terms, the upgrading of what kind of body you'll have after death. And so uh, really after the resurrection. So you die, this body deteriorates, your soul is resurrected and given a new body. And what is that new body like? That's what I mean by theosis. It's the quality of that new body. The quality of that new body is divine. Now, uh, there are distinctions that, like you said, need to be made. We're not becoming Yahweh. We're not becoming the creator God who, in essence, uh, is you know the father, son, um, as we've seen in, in Scripture, right? He is distinct. And some of the um, illustrations that help keep this in mind is, um, these are ancient illustrations, like one is putting a bar of iron into a forge. Uh, Over time, the iron will start to glow the same color as the fire that it was put in. And so it doesn't become the fire, but it comes to share in the qualities of the fire. If you remove that iron from the fire, it loses those qualities. It starts to fade away. Keep that in mind as we discuss... um, 
certain examples from the Bible concerning theosis. Sometimes this is referred to as apotheosis. Uh, sometimes this is referred to, as you mentioned, deification or divinization. And even sometimes this process is referred to as angelification, the process by which we become like the angels. And that's taken straight from the teachings of Jesus in Luke's gospel. So we will get to all of those eventually. But when I think of theosis, I primarily think of that culmination by which we uh, are now revealed to be the sons of God in our new bodies. So any thoughts there, Nick? Other synonyms that are used uh, are transformation, union, participation, partaking, uh, intermingling, elevation, interpenetration, transmutation, commingling, assimilation, reintegration, (laughs) adoption, recreation, uh, all those, by the way, from a paper by a guy named Clint Denon on the uh, uh, Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox view specifically of theosis. But um, yeah, uh, the iron in fire, there's also other illustrations uh, or analogies uh, that are sometimes used. Marriage, for example, the two becoming one flesh, and yet while they're one flesh, they still remain two distinct persons. Um, uh, bread that's made out of the grains of wheat. Um, yeah, so uh, it's been talked about a lot <laughs> uh, and different images, different language used to describe it. So, Well, let's look at where we see uh, the idea of theosis in the Old Testament. So why don't you kick us off, Nick? Where do you see theosis uh, possibly in the Old Testament? Well, I, I guess it begins with Genesis 1, 26 and 27, with the idea of image. And you need this foundation in order to make sense of some stuff that's going to come later on in the New Testament. God, of course, in Genesis 1, 26 says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So immediately we see there's something different about humans. Nothing else in creation is a divine image bearer. And uh, so humans are the image bearers here on earth. And when you get to chapter 3, things go off the rails. And Adam and Eve, they lose that image in some sense. They lose it, they mar it, they damage it. Um, it, it's the, That's what happens when sin enters the picture. The divine image is marred, it is broken, it is lost. Um, and so that this is the foundation here. And again, it's going to tie into stuff we're going to talk about later when we get to New Testament passages that talk about how what was lost or damaged or marred in Adam is now reclaimed, restored, renewed in Christ. Right. And there's even some future full and final uh, realization and redemption of that image that uh, is part of that uh, theosis theme as well. Right, and and we've mentioned that before, again, on other episodes where we talk about sanctification, 
that's that reclaiming and renewing of uh, what was lost in, in our spirit. And so that's our internal transformation, our formation into Christ likeness. But then, like you said, there's the later culmination of all that, which is the reclaiming of our bodies, the the adoption uh, language used in connection to the resurrection that we'll see in Romans chapter 8. What else did you see there? Uh, Nick, do you have a note on Moses? Uh, I believe that's your note, but it's also foundational to um, what we see in 2 Corinthians. uh, That's right. Moses uh, in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35, where he comes down off the mountain and his face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. That's right. And uh, Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35 is where you can find that. And I'll just... uh, read a little bit from there exodus 34 says it came about when moses was coming down from mount sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in moses's hands as he was coming down from the mountain that moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him so aaron and all the sons of israel saw moses behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him then moses called to them and aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him and moses spoke to them Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near. He commanded them to do everything that Yahweh had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And whenever he came out, spoke to the sons of Israel what had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So it sounds like... Moses, his body was being transformed by being in the presence of Yahweh. He was becoming shiny. And uh, keep that in mind, just the idea of becoming shiny. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds weird, but uh, it actually has a lot to do with the resurrection body and the idea of theosis and angelification. Angels are always described as these bright, shiny beings. And they're always described, well, not always, but they're often described in astral terms, right? As in the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, Moses was uh, exhibiting this kind of quality. You know, he was going into Yahweh's presence like a uh, like a glow stick being placed under a lamp, right? And then he comes out and he's bright and shiny, uh, not green, but uh, he's bright and shiny. And then as his shininess sort of starts to fade away, he puts the veil over his face until he goes into the presence of Yahweh again. Paul commentates on that in Second Corinthians, and we'll get there in the New Testament section, but. Uh, we just wanted to note that now and how these ideas that there is a fundamental change that takes place in the human, uh, even in the body of the human, by being in the presence of Yahweh. So that idea, that's in there. That's in the, the, the foundation of the Old Testament. Another passage is uh, Psalm 17. And so I saw this the other day uh, when we were preaching through the Psalms uh, at church here. And at the end of Psalm 17... It says that, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Now, that language of awakening, that has to do with the resurrection. And this is um, parallel to the, the Septuagint translation of the same verse where it says, I will be satisfied with the seeing of your glory. So there's this idea that no human alive on earth can see uh, the glory of Yahweh and live. 
And you get that from Exodus 33, verse 20. And so when people came into contact with Yahweh, we call that a theophany, um, they were terrified because they thought they were going to die. But that theophany was actually the angel of the Lord. So go back to episode one of this season. So when they come in contact with the angel of the Lord, that is not the full glory of Yahweh. That's the embodied Yahweh making himself visible for humans. But this is something different. The glory of Yahweh no human can see and live. And so this idea inherent at the end of Psalm 17 verse 15 is the hope that in the resurrection, when you, after death, awake, you are made alive again, you will get to see the glory of Yahweh. So there'll have to be some sort of fundamental change that takes place. Now, uh, you have a note here on Psalm 82. Is that right, Nick? Yep, yep. Uh, this is a, uh, one of the psalms that are quoted in connection with uh, uh, the whenever a an early church writer, for example, Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr, when they talk about um, the elevation of a human into uh, the presence of God and what happens to us after the resurrection, they'll, in fact, Justin Martyr cites this text at length, um, and they make the argument that uh, this is talking about humans. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right and of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And the way that this uh, text gets interpreted by uh, these early church writers is they say that the context is about humans, uh, specifically unjust human judges and rulers who are being judged or sentenced by God. And they usually connect this with Jesus' quotation of verse 6, I said, you are gods, in John chapter 10, in order to, again, talk about the elevation of humans in glory. That in some sense, humans are called gods, and this is the text that they will refer to. Uh, So, um, other ascension figures, Alex, like uh, Enoch and Elijah, what can you tell us about them? Yeah, so this idea that, again... Once you go into the presence of God to see his glory, his unfiltered glory, um, that requires uh, a fundamental change. Like you can't be the same kind of human you once were any longer. And so you have these uh, stories that, especially in the Second Temple era, come out um, elaborating on these figures who were um, taken from earth and ascended into heaven. And so these are ascension figures is what scholars call them. And so the first one is Enoch, you know, where it says he walked with God for 365 years and then uh, the Lord took him and he was no more, right? Well, Second Temple era, you get all this Enochian literature then that sort of Enoch has been uh, angelified. He he has undergone uh, angelification. He is now this uh, 
figure, this messenger figure, but he's not an angel messenger figure. He's a human messenger figure, but he's sent in between the the divine and the human. And then there's Elijah, right? And the same sort of idea where chariots of fire come down. Well, what what are angels? Angels are ministering spirits of winds and fire. So these chariots of fire come down. They take Elijah up into the heavens. And so he is now an ascension figure. And it's important to remember these ascension figures because when we get to the New Testament, the transfiguration is one of those hallmark events that uh, has to do with theosis. When Jesus transfigures himself, his uh, it's 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 a it's a showing of his divine human body, and we'll we'll get to the early church fathers explaining that how he through the incarnation uh, made his human body divinized. So there was a some sort of transformation that took place so that we could participate in the same thing, so that we would become by his grace what he was. Um, uh, what he always is in his nature. But we're still human. He's still Yahweh. There's still the distinction. So the ascension figures are this, uh, again, this puzzle in the, in the bigger piece here that we're looking at. So Enoch, Elijah, and it's not Enoch that shows up with Elijah next to Jesus on, on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured. It's Moses. And so there's, again, another piece of the puzzle here where perhaps uh, Moses has, by the time you get to the New Testament, been thought of as this ascension figure, how he has now ascended after his death, uh, not before his death, like Enoch and Elijah, but after his death, has ascended, become this ascension figure, this transformed human. And so keep those figures in mind. That's part of the collage of the uh, idea of theosis. And then we have uh, Daniel chapter 12. Do you have any thoughts on the ascension figures, uh, Nick? Uh, no. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll, I'll read Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3 here for you. Yeah. Um, it says, uh, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's right. So this is one of those Old Testament passages about the resurrection, one of the the more popular ones that refer to, yeah, there is this idea of dead people coming back to life at a future eschatological time. And what will the description of those uh, resurrected people be? What will they look like? Well, Daniel says right here, they will shine brightly like the expanse of the heavens, referring to the sun, moon, and the stars. And uh, like the stars forever and ever, they will shine because they led many to righteousness. And so these are obviously faithful people who worked uh, during their time on earth to bring about God's kingdom. So that language, that star language is in, in, integrated into the idea of theosis. It's this idea of becoming like the stars. So keep that in mind, especially when we get to uh, Philippians and 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection body. And he says, you know, we have an earthly body. Later, we'll have a heavenly body. And he says, heavenly bodies are different. They're not all the same. And he compares the stars one to another. And then the moon is different. The sun is different. They all have different 
qualities uh, and specifically their their different shininess right they have different levels of shininess <laughs> and so that's that's what he says the resurrection body will be like so what what would determine then how shiny we get to be in our new bodies in our new theosis uh, divinized angelification state well uh, i think that ties back to sanctification in what we do here now on earth but the point is that these ideas are in the Old Testament. They're not novel to the uh, Second Temple era. They're not novel to the New Testament. They're not novel to the Church Fathers. The foundation for theosis and becoming like the angels or like the stars, that's the Old Testament. That starting point is the Bible for uh, these believers. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, you said uh, exactly what I was thinking. The, the foundations are laid. There's... Uh prep work that's been done, and uh, this is only going to become more pronounced as we come into the New Testament. But uh, before we get there, uh, Alex, you've done some legwork here on uh, some of the Second Temple literature as it relates to this subject of theosis. Um, What did you find? Yeah, so there's a uh, a paper written by a guy named David Burnett, and his paper is called So Shall Your Seed Be?, and it's a paper about how in the Second Temple era, which again is from roughly around four or 500 BC to uh, the first century AD, and it's called the Second Temple Era because that's when the Second Temple stood from the building to the destruction of that Second Temple. During that era, there were many important writings that took place that helped give us insight into how the, um, how the people of God read their own Bible and how that interpretation and reading of their own Bible uh, either makes its way into the New Testament or doesn't, right? So sometimes you get to the New Testament, and the interpretation and the reading of the Old Testament is the same as the Second Temple sort of uh, consensus. So it gives us more information to think about. So what this guy found is that the Abrahamic promise was read by several people in the Second Temple era in a way that points towards theosis. And so if you go to Genesis 15, 5, uh, you remember it's the famous promise where God, Yahweh God tells Abraham, uh, your descendants will be like the stars. Now, normally that is interpreted in a qual- uh, quantitative sense. That is, you're going to have numerous descendants. But in the Second Temple era, there were several writers who interpreted that both quantitatively, like you're going to have numerous descendants, but also qualitatively. In other words, they will be like the glory of the stars. Because in the ancient mind, in the biblical worldview, the stars are often used as a description of heavenly beings, or these other gods of the nations, or the angels, or Yahweh's heavenly entourage. And so, depending on the context, the imagery of the sun, moon, and the stars were used quite often to speak of divine beings of one sort or another. So, Philo read it in that way. So, in uh, Philo's commentary on uh, Genesis and and uh, also on his questions in, in on Genesis, he uh, reads Genesis 15.5 in that way, that Abraham's, the promise of his descendants, it was a promise for their humanity to be made star-like, bright and shiny, divine-like. They don't become Yahweh's, but they do become uh, 
something that is is a higher level of human than what they currently currently are. So they're still human, but they're next level human. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, strange. It almost sounds like you know what the um, uh, almost sounds like sci-fi, right? Like the transhuman movement, right? But it's it's different because it's not a next level human by our own intelligence and our own effort and our own scientific tooling creating half monkey half human embryos <laughs> it's yeah. it's the next level human by god's creation by his will by his gift and so there's a there's a big difference between that it's almost like uh you know the difference between what god has in mind for adam and eve in the garden and what satan says no he doesn't want you to be like him if you eat what this fruit, then you get to be like him, but he doesn't want you to be like him. It's kind of that same, same trap, that same trick with the transhumanist movement. Anyway, Philo, he reads Genesis 15, five in a qualitative interpretation origin of Alexandria and the early church fathers. He continues in that tradition, which is no surprise because origin was real big into the allegorical interpretation. And that's what Philo did a lot. It's a lot of allegorical interpretation it doesn't mean they never took anything literally. It just means that they uh, read the stories and the things of the Old Testament, and then they it interpreted they interpreted them in a way that was uh, what they believed to be the deeper, more true meaning of the story. So he, in his commentary on Romans chapter four, he reads that promise to Abraham as a promise to not only be made like the stars qualitatively, but also to inherit the whole earth, the whole cosmos. And so that's something that goes a little bit beyond what Genesis says. So Sirach does the same thing. We find Sirach in our The Wisdom of Sirach, The Wisdom of Ben Sirach in our Septuagint. He says the same thing in chapter 44, verse 21. He interprets Genesis 15, 5 in a qualitative theosis-like manner. And then we see that Paul in the New Testament may be doing the same thing, but we'll talk more about Romans 4 when we get to the New Testament. The same thing is seen in the book of Enoch, 1st Enoch chapter 104, verses 1 through 6, and also in the Testament of Moses, chapter 10. All of those are Second Temple literature. They all read that Abrahamic promise as uh, something that happens to Abraham's descendants. It is a transformation into a star-like status where you become bright and shiny and, um, and, and transformed. Theosis, that's what we're talking about. So that's the Second Temple literature, this idea where we see, yeah, it's laid in the Old Testament. It continues on through Second Temple era. And now we get to the New Testament where we're really going to nail down on some of these things, Nick. So what do we see in the New Testament, Nick, regarding theosis? Well, let's go ahead, since we've already laid some foundation work on uh, this particular text, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, because you, you do have the merging here of the Exodus 34 narrative. You have blended in here uh, the idea of the image coming into view here. Uh, and so uh, Paul here begins by talking about the ministry of death. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit even have, uh, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So what's he talking about here? He's drawing the the contrast between the old covenant and the glory that accompanied it, and there was glory, he says. But now with the new covenant and this uh, ministry of righteousness, as he calls it, the glory of that far far exceeds the glory of that old ministry of condemnation, as he calls it here. So that's the contrast that's being drawn here. Since we have such a hope, verse 12, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Hmm. And so, again, here's image here at the end of this. He's, he's utilized, leaned upon that narrative of Moses throughout most of this, but now we come to the idea of image. And again, what was lost in Adam is now reclaimed, restored, renewed in Christ, and only through Christ is it uh, uh, restored, renewed, recreated. Uh, and we are being transformed. Yes, that's a present passive uh, verb here. And so that's something being done to us. We are being transformed. We all, by the way, so this is for all true believers, all Christians, uh, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, And so it is progressive in uh, in nature. Uh, So, Alex, what, what do you see here? Yeah, I find it interesting also that Paul is using the Exodus 34 narrative in an allegorical way. He's not saying it didn't happen. Uh, Moses did go on the mountain. He did come back with a shiny face. He did put a veil over his face afterwards so the hard-hearted Israelites wouldn't uh, uh, see what was fading away, the glory that was lessening until he goes back into the presence of Yahweh. Well, Paul applies that allegorically to the Christian and compares it to the unbelievers who still read the law of Moses and yet do not come to see face-to-face Jesus for who he is, that is the Christ. And so he ends on the passage, we with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so again, this idea that Jesus, he became a human, but as a human, he uh, exhibited to us what we could also be as a human. And so he, uh, the, the, in essence, Yahweh put on a human flesh and divinized that human flesh so that we as humans in our fallen flesh could one day participate in the same thing. We would still be in essence human and he would still be in essence Yahweh, but he came to become like us so that we could become like him. And it's not, again, the distinction. It's not us becoming Yahweh or in essence Yahweh. It's us coming to share in what he did with his human body. He wants us to become like he was 
on earth and even in his transfigured state on the mountain. And so that is uh, something that is happening right now. You mentioned the present passive tense. Uh, It's happening to us. And that's sanctification. That's the transformation in our spirit that's happening right now. And that has a climax. It has a culmination. And that's that new body. So let's go to Philippians, Nick. Philippians chapter 3. Yeah, so Philippians 3. Uh, and really, I guess to get the the context here and to really see the contrast that's drawn out, you we can start in verse 18, uh, where Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So that's one camp here, enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's the enemies of the cross that Paul is describing here. And so their end, the end for the enemies of the cross, is destruction. And they they do have a glory here, but they glory in their shame, he says. They do have a God, but their God is their belly. Ah, but, and here's the contrast, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So our end is contrasted with their end, the end of the uh, enemies of the cross. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, present tense. Our present bodies, though they are lowly or humble, they are mortal, weak, subject to death, broken by sin. But by the all-subjecting power of Christ, he will change these lowly bodies into bodies like the body of his glory, which is literally what is said there, uh, his glorious body, the body of his glory. Our new body will be fit for eternity in the afterlife. It will be able to associate with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in all their glory. Uh, So dynamic contrast here between the enemies of the cross of Christ and those who, as disciples, have come to the cross of Christ and been crucified with Christ. Uh, So uh, that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, no, and just the emphasis again on verse 21, there will be a transformation of the body of our humble state, our current human, mortal, weak, fleshly state. That will be transformed. That will be different it will become immortal. It will be a heavenly body that ties into 1 Corinthians 15. It will be uh, sharers in the divine nature, as we'll see in 2 Peter 1. And this is, again, I think, uh, connected to what Jesus says about the resurrection. He says in Luke chapter 20, verse um, 34, it says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, uh, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... And the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, normally people spin out on just that part, you know, well, what does that mean concerning marriage? But sometimes they miss out on the next part. It says, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God. There you have the connection between uh, the Old Testament uh, uh, title for angels was sometimes sons of God. Being sons of the resurrection, then, that's what we will be. It's what we are and will be. But that the dead are raised, and then it goes on to say, uh, talk about Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But that passage, that's where we get the term angelification. We'll be like the angels. We'll be, our humble state will be transformed. Again, angel language usually centers around astral heavenly language, shininess, brightness. That brightness is the uh, flexing of uh, your, your divine uh, sharing of, of God's glory. And so he wants to share his glory with us. That's where that ultimately ends up is in our transformation. So um, moving on to the next verse again, we have a podcast on Philippians 3, Diligent Listener, so you might go back and listen to the archives, but we have a lot of material here. So what about 1 Corinthians 15 then? Famous, large resurrection passage. Nick, talk to us about that. Yeah, I suppose it's a question as old as the church itself. Uh, maybe the question the disciples were asking themselves as they were watching the Lord ascend into heaven. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And that's the question that begins this section here, uh, or at least this uh, this new line of argumentation in the larger context of 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about uh, the resurrection. And Paul specifically arguing against those who would say there is no resurrection. Uh, and essentially he points them to Jesus if the dead are not raised, explain Jesus. Well, here again, how are the dead raised? What kind of body? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body body. The resurrection body, there's a lot of speculation about what it is, because what we will be has not yet appeared, as John says in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. We don't know exactly what the future spiritual body will be like, but we do know it will be like Christ's resurrection body, yeah, because right. exactly. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, we shall be like him. And so Paul here talking about this spiritual body, uh, N.T. Wright has a, a great example of this uh, because sometimes people get it confused and they think, well, a spiritual body, it just means like we're going to be these spirits that kind of fly off into heaven. Yeah. And actually... Like a, like a wisp of smoke or something. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. And that is not what Paul is talking about here. Uh, and so N.T. Wright uses the illustration of a, a steam locomotive, right? When you think of a steam locomotive, you don't think of a train that's made out of steam, right? You think of a train that's powered by the steam, and that's what Paul is talking about here. This is a body which is powered by the Spirit. It, there's, there's substance to it, and we, we, know, we can see this based on the gospel accounts of Jesus's resurrection body. He was not an ethereal, ghostly uh, um, apparition. Yeah, That's the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't think of it, though. Um, <laughs> In fact, he says that to his disciples. Touch me and see, yeah. for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have, he says in Luke 24 and verse 39. So That's why he eats with them. 
Exactly. He ate with his resurrected body. Uh, He had a, a body that they could touch that had some substance to it. And when the disciples saw it, they were glad when they saw the Lord, John 20, verse 20 says. And when people don't recognize it, sometimes that happens, like in earlier in Luke 24, verses 16 and following, I don't know that it's so much Jesus uh, shape-shifting as it is their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Uh, and so in these ways, the Lord's resurrected body, it is similar to his body before death, but there are noticeable differences as well uh, between his resurrected body and the body before his resurrection. The resurrection body apparently does not strictly adhere to the laws of physics, and I say that because there's the account in John chapter 20 when the disciples are behind locked doors and Jesus just kind of manifests in the room, right? and he's, he's with them um, and startles them. Uh, and even the uh, resurrection event itself is evidence of the resurrection body's spir- supernatural capabilities. Jesus' body, it seems as though, just the way it's kind of written in the original, that his body kind of passes through the linens in which he was wrapped, just kind of leaving there, leaving them to lie there. Uh, and, um, and then the stone over the entrance is rolled away, again, not to let the Lord out, but to allow the disciples to see in. His body is gone. I've heard it illustrated this way. I believe it was Donald Gray Barnhouse in one of his commentaries used to use this illustration, and I think it's a good one. Uh, suppose I had a, a book, and I have several books on my, uh, in my library that have this. They have a, a, a dust jacket on it. When you take the dust jacket off, you just have that hardback book, and, and you could take a piece of paper in, and you could insert uh, a sheet of paper into that book. Written on it, it says, Soul. And that jacketless book is the body, and that slice of paper inside is the soul. And that's kind of what it's like with our physical bodies, Uh, with our soul within us. And when we die, the soul goes to be with the Lord. The physical body is buried. But at the resurrection, there is a reunion of the soul with the body. And then you also have that dust jacket, as it were, that, that now we are clothed with this new glorious body. It's changed. It looks different, right? Uh, not a perfect illustration, but I think it, it, it helps to visualize what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15 about this new, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. Uh, and what we lost in Adam, he goes on to talk about Adam here in verses 45 and following. What right. we lost in Adam, we get even more gained through Christ, uh, which is a, a phenomenal thing. So... Uh, that's a bit of what I see here, First Corinthians 15. <laughs> Alex, uh, toss some stuff in here. What, what do you see here? Well, I mean, I think you covered a lot of good stuff. And again, it's um, something that does begin now. We have the glory of Christ uh, in us. We are being transformed, made into his likeness. But again, that has an end goal in mind, and the end goal is to unite us with a resurrected body. I think Jesus's body after his death, yeah, it does. It passes through those cloths. I was thinking when you were saying that, um, it reminds me of the Shroud of Turin. Now, uh, some people don't think the Shroud of Turin is, is legitimate because uh, some of the carbon dating uh, dates back to, you know, the 12th or, or 13th century. But those are parts of the garment that had been repaired after it was damaged in a fire. The 
inner part of the garment has not been tested and uh it does uh well maybe it has i can't remember maybe it has been tested and goes back to the to the first century but anyway when you when you talked about his him passing through the burial cloths it's just like that reminds me of the shroud of turin because (laughs) it looks like his his image his body was imprinted onto that burial cloth and so that's very interesting um and it's not like he couldn't do stuff before his resurrection right i mean he walked on water (laughs) he 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 could he could manifest new material uh from uh from very little uh the fish multiplying the the bread multiplying so he had immense power which i think is why the early church fathers emphasized that when he became human it was in the incarnation that he made that human body divine-like and uh, it was a lowering for himself, uh, him him inhabiting a human body, even a human body that he would make divine, that was still a condescending for him. That was a lowering, a, hum- a humbling, a pouring out of himself. But for us, it's our promotion. It's him saying, here's what I am as a human. This is also what you can become as a human. But I'm not a human. I'm actually still Yahweh. You will always be a human. But I want you to be promoted. I want you to share in the likeness of what I have become in the incarnation. So there's the, uh, again, the distinction, but also uh, just sort of the wonder and the awe of of what we can do and what we'll be like in the resurrection. And I think it even gives a little bit of insight as to why the apostles and uh, all these figures in the early church performed such wonderful miracles of course it was by the holy spirit of course it was by god's grace and christ's commission but you almost get a little bit of that uh, i hate to say mechanical aspect of but how (laughs) and it's because they were the first ones the first fruits to start becoming like he was and that's uh you mentioned first john three um I don't know if we'll, we'll, well, I think we'll mention it again, but, but in 1 John 3, it says, uh, we don't know what we'll be like, but we'll see him in his likeness because we'll be made like him. I might be saying that wrong. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God. So that's the present state. We are sons of God, children of God, but it's not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And so that being made like him goes hand in hand with seeing him as he is. And uh, that's why I threw in Psalm 17 at the end, verse 15, where David says, I will see his glory. I will see his likeness as he is. Well, there must be then a transformation in ourselves that happens in the resurrection in order to fully see him as he actually is. Well, what else do we have here, Nick? We've got 1 Corinthians 15 that we've covered. We... uh, covered philippians chapter 3 verse 20 yeah there was another verse in philippians i don't know if we wanted to pass over just in mention i think it was in chapter 2 right chapter yeah, go 2 for verse uh, 8 being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and so uh that i think we already you know talked plenty about that was his incarnation obviously that is his becoming a real man but he he divinized that human body and that's for our sake not for his sake for our sake okay so uh romans chapter eight nick let's go there for a minute yeah 
Uh, Romans 8, and uh, to really get the flavor of this, you start in verse 18, uh, where Paul says, well, actually, I guess we've got to back up even further, because he says, uh, we're led by the Spirit, uh, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, verse 14, we don't have a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as sons, in verse 15, Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Mm. Okay, So you have the introduction here of this, this, uh, this theme of glorification with him, and he continues in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the Mm. creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Him who subjected it, by the way, there's a lot of discussion about who exactly that is. Was it uh, the devil? Was it Adam? I'm persuaded it was God who subjected it, because it will also be God who frees his creation at the final revelation. And although God at the beginning curses the ground because of sin, subjecting creation to futility, there's yet hope of creation's liberation in connection with human glorification. That's why it says, him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits here is a a Pentecost, it's Pentecost language. Um, We presently have the Spirit, and the presence of the Spirit serves as this down payment or deposit for the coming redemption of the body and the glory that's to be revealed. Uh, And so uh, the first fruits motif, you connect that with Pentecost, and it's already started way back in Acts 2, Um, and then you have all this stuff in the law as well. But uh, we ourselves groan inwardly, Paul continues here, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you've already seen several of these phrases, glorified with him, the glory that's to be revealed in us, revealing of the sons of God, freedom of the glory of the children of God, the redemption of our bodies. These are all uh, phrases that are related to the subject of theosis. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Christ's return, and that's what he's talking about here, uh, what we're waiting for with patience, Christ's return uh, means glorification for Christians. And it also means cosmic liberation in some sense. Uh, It's difficult to read this and not hear Paul talking about the whole creation and how even the whole creation, which is now in bondage to corruption, is going to be freed from that bondage to corruption. Almost sounds like a new heaven and a new earth. Almost. Almost (laughs) sounds like it. Um, Glorification here is the full deliverance, body, soul, and mind, uh, for us, full deliverance from sin and evil and the transformation of the physical body into that spiritual body. When when mortality puts on immortality, we will be like Jesus. And throughout Romans, Paul has been stressing God's glory and uh, how we rejoice in the glory of God back in chapter 5. But he's also talked about how there are people, and even us before Christ, 
We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for lesser and ignoble things. Way back in chapter 1 and verse 23. We Mm. fall short of the glory of God. 3 verse 23. Everybody does that. And yet, because of what God did in Christ, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 5 verse 2. And now we catch a glimpse of that glory to be revealed. The glorious freedom in the redemption of our bodies through God in Christ. We have been set free fully. And finally, from bondage of sin and death that uh, they have brought, and all our suffering will give way to glory one day. And we can't overlook this because it's part of the context as well. You get down to verse 29, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that uh, he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. That Here's the image again. That's why we started way back in Genesis 1. The image returns. And now, uh, even now, we are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. And yet, and because of uh, our union with Christ, there's yet to be a future, full, final realization of this. And it's, again, connected to the hope that we have when Christ returns, that coming glory that will be revealed to us and also in us, as we put on those glorious spiritual bodies. A lot of good stuff here, Alex. um, And I've only touched the hem of the garment. What do you see here? (laughs) No, I I think you covered a lot of good ground. Um, The revealing of the sons of God, again, as we mentioned in the Old Testament, that is a phrase used for angels or sometimes they're referred to as other gods, but they're not Yahweh God. They're created beings. And so the sons of God, this heavenly entourage, the sun, moon, and the stars, these uh, have... Images to them in the Old Testament that are packed full of full of uh, again picture imagery. Here we are now in Romans. Paul touches on that and he says it's going to be revealed that we're the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for that moment. They're waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. That revealing will happen. How will the revealing happen? It'll be in the resurrection when we get our new bodies. Those new bodies will shine like the glory of the sun, moon, and the stars, we will share through the the, the gifting uh, of Christ in God's glory. So these are, again, we're pulling the thread. We're seeing where it takes us. There's a lot of connection here, a lot of connection. Let's move on to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, Nick, what do do we see there? And we do have a podcast on that, 2 Peter 1. We do, and this is the locus classicus, right? This is the classic verse that... uh is referenced again and again when uh, we, we come to this theme of theosis, um, and especially uh, throughout church history and early church writings and things like that. Uh, let's get the flavor here back in verse 3. His divine power, well, I guess we even need verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the, there's the uh, declaration of the full divinity of Christ, by the way. God and Savior, that's the Granville Sharp rule that indicates that um, uh, here Jesus Christ is God and also is Savior. Um, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ uh, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So already you see the glory motif showing up, right? Mm -hmm. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. One of those promises being, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. There it is. There's the 
the key phrase for us, partakers of the divine nature, uh, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's the contrast. There's the, the negative thing that we are to avoid. The positive thing is uh, becoming partakers of the divine nature. And uh, this, what's immediately in view is the idea of becoming like him in his holy nature, his divine nature here. And the rest of the verse, I think, brings us into sharp focus, how we are to escape the corrupting nature that's in the world because of sinful desire. And there's a paper, Wendy Corbin Ruschling has written it for the uh, Journal of Theological Interpretation about this very passage as it relates to theosis. And what is fascinating is, if becoming partakes of the divine nature, if that is the end, and, and I believe that's, that's accurate, that that's the end, uh, and it involves even our full participation in the divine nature uh, one day, uh, and then, then the means by which we are striving toward this is, are communicated in verses 5 and following. Uh, what I have called the ladder of virtue, Alex has a different name for it, which is... I call it the divine macrame. Yeah. Uh, And that's why I started back in verse 1 with this business of faith, because we are to add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control steadfastness, steadfastness godliness, godliness brotherly affection, brotherly affection love. That these are the means that uh, are implemented by the Christian in the here and the now, as we work out our own salvation and we are being sanctified and all that. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse uh, 8, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And all this is tied to becoming partakers of the divine nature. It impacts the here and the now, but it also has importance for the there and the then. That's right. Uh, So partakers of the divine nature. Alex, take it away. Yeah, I see it almost as sanctification. Um, the image I have is sanctification is like, a, that's, that's the charging up. We're charging our spirit uh, in preparation for what will be revealed. And uh, theosis is that resurrection body where we see, well, how much did we charge up, right? And so it's going to be, people are going to have different degrees of glory. And it's not a competition. It's, it's, it's up to you. It's your own will and desire to see how far are you willing to let the Lord sanctify you and transform you. It makes a difference not only now, but also in the age to come. That glory language in Second Peter 1, 3, that prefaces becoming by uh, his magnificent promises, partakers of the divine nature, Peter mentions that glory again in verse 17, where he says, He received honor, they received honor, him and James and John, uh, and glory from God the Father. uh, No, for when he, Jesus, verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the transfiguration event, Matthew 17, verse 5, Mark 9, verse 7, Luke 9, verse 35. And Luke mentions in... uh, verse 31, Luke 9, verse 31, that when Moses and Elijah show up there, uh, they show up in glory as well. 
And, and so it says, uh, Luke 9.30, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what were they witnesses to? They were witnesses to people who have undergone theosis. Moses has. Elijah has. By the way, I wrote a short story called The Theosis of Moses about his uh, right. those, the, the how I connect the dots and, and sort of uh, bring to light Moses's transformation into theosis. But of course, the greater glory was assigned to Jesus Christ, who was in between them and who received the endorsement by the majestic glory, the voice of God the Father from the sky. So that idea then uh, of that's that's your glory, that ties into theosis, that ties into what Peter says, we've seen what this looks like. This is the grand promise. And I think Peter has this in mind, even when he's talking about his earthly departure in verse 14, 2 Peter 1, 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling uh, the word there is, is literally tabernacle, my earthly tent, my earthly clothing, you could think of it that way, is imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. <clears throat> so what is his hope of the divine nature? What is uh, the thing he looks forward to? It's his new dwelling, his new clothing, and his new glory, which he knows uh, doubly sure that is real because he's seen it. He's seen it in Jesus when he was transfigured. He's seen it in Moses and Elijah when they appeared in glory next to him. And that transfiguration of Jesus, that's uh, that's what we receive, that we will be made like him in that transfiguration moment. And, uh, and it will be glorious. <laughs> so right. here we go. We have a couple more spots to uh, – any more thoughts on Second Peter, Nick? Uh, no, I, and I appreciate you continuing that glory motif. That's good stuff there later on in the chapter. Well, we also have First uh, John three two, which I've already read, and I think we've hit on that uh, several times. But again, we're made, uh, we'll be made like him. That's how we will see him for what he is, for who he is, and that cross reference that back to Psalm seventeen fifteen. How that seed, that kernel of an idea, is in the Old Testament as well. John ten. Uh, verse 34, where Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. Did you want to talk about that, Nick? Yeah, just to mention that this is, uh, we mentioned Psalm 82 earlier in the podcast, and here is Jesus quoting from that, giving his uh, infallible interpretation of it as part of a lesser to greater argument. Uh, there, the, the Jewish opponents in his day, they were getting upset because you being a man, verse 33 says, make yourself God. And this is, he says, this is not written in your law. I said, you are gods, verse 34. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Uh, if I'm doing the works of the Father, then... Uh, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe them, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. And again, and this, by the way, this is important as we're about to launch into uh, looking briefly at the what the early church writers write about uh, theosis. The bulk, of the the main thing you're supposed to walk away with from this argument is not necessarily, although it's true. Well, humans in some sense are called gods. That's important, but the the greater thing here, and what Jesus is arguing for, is his own deity. Right, How much more appropriate is this designation for him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, even the Son of God? 
so that's that's the uh, and, and that's important because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, citing from uh, Karlamov in his paper, the uh, the bulk of the argument. When, whenever the early church writers start talking about our elevation, our graduation, our becoming gods, isn't about that. It's always pointing to Christ and his uh, either full humanity or full deity. Full deity. It just depends on who they're arguing with. But um, it's always in the context of their Christology. Um, and so uh, that's a bit about John ten thirty four. Um, what do we have left? Uh, res- the resurrection one, body. One, one quick note about John John ten and his quoting yeah. of Psalm eighty two. Um, whether you interpret the gods there uh, as being human or as being um, divine creatures, created divine creatures, um, the the point made by the church fathers and by Jesus, like you said, is Christ's own divinity. Because at the beginning of Psalm eighty two, it says. Uh, yeah, uh, God takes his his seat in the assembly of the gods. And when Jesus says, "To whom the word of God came, the consecrated one from the Father," uh, he's saying he's saying that he is the word of God, which came, which goes back to John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so, if there are these other gods, whether they're created divine beings or whether they're elevated human beings, the point is is that either way, that group is lower than the word of God, which has been consecrated and sent by the Father and has come to deliver a message, right? To reveal to them the Father. So that, um, again, is important because it's a key argument for Jesus's divinity. He and the Father are one. He's not simply one of the other gods. He is the consecrated one, the word of God. And so that's obviously, you know, a huge theme in John's gospel is, is Jesus's divinity. He is Yahweh God, the word, the logos in human flesh. So I just wanted to, to add that to the, to the conversation. Uh, how about uh, resurrection body as clothing? You want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, so this will be brief. You know, in 15, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, fifteen forty nine, and I know we just read it, um, but 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine says that just as we have born the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That word for born, it means to wear. It means to wear, to put on. And so uh, it, it could just as easily say, just as we have to wear the image of the earthly, so we will also wear the image of the heavenly. And this goes into a greater motif of using our bodies as clothing language. And uh, we saw that in uh, Peter, Second Peter 1, 14, where he's going to uh, take off his earthly dwelling, his earthly tent, his earthly clothing. That's used of Jesus in the incarnation, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt is tabernacled, right? He was clothed and tabernacled among us. And that is language we see again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, when we see the martyrs under the altar in heaven, and they say, how long until you vindicate us for all the, you know, all the bloodshed that has happened to us? And he says, just a little bit longer, and he says, hold on and wait. Here are your white garments. Here are your new clothes. And I think that uh, should be interpreted as their new bodies. Um, and that's Revelation chapter 6, verses uh, 
9 through 11. And so he said they were told that they should rest for a little while in verse 11 until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. But it says they were given each of them a white robe. So that how are angels described? Angels are described as being in all white, wearing white clothing that's brighter and whiter than anybody could ever bleach them on earth. So that's that angelification. That's that theosis again taking place. It's our new clothing. It kind of goes to your illustration from that one author about the dust jacket, right? That's the new dust jacket. So uh, resurrection body is clothing. Keep that in mind, especially when you see the here and now being applied. Like when Jude says, keep your garments from being stained by the world, right? Through lust, through sexual morality. There is... um, a preparation part, which we do now, which we don't want to stain our earthly garments because that has a, uh, an impact on our heavenly garments that we'll receive later on. It's, so that sanctification, that is important. So early church fathers, Nick, take it away. What did the early church fathers say about theosis? Well, and I'll just say to our diligent listeners that um, if you want to check our work on this and actually read the early church writers, uh, what they wrote for yourself, you can actually do so at a website, uh, ccel.org, that is C-C-E-L, and that stands for uh, Christian Classic Ethereal Library, something like that, ccel.org, and you have access to all 38 volumes of the... uh, Nicene, post-Nicene, uh, ante, the Antonicene, Nicene, and post-Nicene fathers, all their writings uh, are available on uh, that website. And so there's actually, uh, I don't even know, hundreds of references uh, to this subject uh, throughout the uh, writings of these guys. And uh, let me just give you the references uh, that I pulled from. Uh, so Irenaeus in, uh, let's see, Against Heresies 3, 6, 3. So what is that? Book, Book. chapter, verse, I think. Yeah. 3, yeah. 6, 3. And then also 3, 19, 1, 4, 38. And also Preface 5. In the preface to book five, and that's an important one, right, Alex? Yeah, that's right. In the preface to book five, you have a quote from him that basically, in one form or another, gets quoted over and over and over again. But Irenaeus is kind of the earliest one to say it this way. He says, But following the only true and steadfast teacher, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. That's, again, Irenaeus in his preface to Book 5 against heresies. But that will be repeated over and over again. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. That is, again, Jesus' humanity is his uh, humbling, his demotion, so that we could have an ascension, a promotion. So his humanity led to our divinity. But again, a distinction we don't become in essence, anything other than human, but we become a new kind of human. Uh, Clement of Alexandria will say quite a bit about theosis, as I'm sure you'll note, but uh, he says something similar. He says, Yea, I say, the word of God became man, that thou mayest learn from man 
how man may become God. So again, it's a learning process, that's sanctification, and it results through faith and endurance in our own theosis. And then Athanasius and later John of Damascus and Gregory of Nazianzus, he emphasizes Jesus's deifying of his own human flesh through the incarnation. But his essence is still God. It's, he's still Yahweh. And unlike our deification, which even when that happens, even on the resurrection, in essence, we'll still be human, but we'll be the kind of human that we saw Jesus being when he was on earth, when he was transfigured on the mountain, when he was resurrected from the dead. So what about all these church fathers, Nick? There's so much. Can you summarize for us just sort of the different approaches from the church fathers on theosis? Yeah, and there really is a bunch. Uh, Let me just quickly list these. Clement of Alexandria, Exhortation to the Heathen, Chapter 1 of that. Uh, Also Clement of Alexandria, The Instructor, uh, uh, 3.1. And then Stromata, or Miscellanies, 7.10. Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with uh, Trifo the Jew, um, which I thought I had a specific reference for that. I guess I didn't grab that. Uh, you mentioned Athanasius, four discourses against the Arians, one verses 38 and 39, also 3, 38, and also 39, uh, 142 of the same work. On the Incarnation of the Word, section 54, that's a big one that's cited pretty often. Uh, Councils of Arminium and Seleucia, section 51. Uh, further down, uh, against uh, four discourses against the Arians, 270. And then, uh, let's see, John of Damascus. Yeah, you mentioned him, an exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, Defita Orthodoxa, I believe it's what it's called usually in the Latin there, 212. And then Hilary of Portier on the Trinity, 9, 4, 9 verses 4 and 5, 938, and then 10, 7 as well. Okay, a lot of references there. And I, I mentioned all those. Again, you can look them up, ccell.org. Uh, and there, there's a lot of good stuff there, by the way, in, in C-Cell. Feel free to tool around in there and find some good stuff. But, um, yeah, w- what do we make of all this? First of all, the, the language of how they talk about it, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not univocal. Uh, sometimes it's uh, partakers of grace. Sometimes it is, as you read, Alex, uh, there. Uh, he became what we are to bring us to be what he is and things like that. Uh, the second thing is, uh, what they mean by that oftentimes differs as well. But here's the thing. The focus of their arguments is on the perfect humanity and the perfect deity of God the Son, the Logos who took on flesh. And so, therefore, I mentioned uh, Karlamov's article earlier, Theosis is a marginal theme in their writings, but again, this is because the emphasis is on Christ, and it's on his nature and person, the two natures in one person, without confusion, change, division, or separation. The second major theme that shows up in the early church writers on this theme is, as you've mentioned multiple times, Alex, humans do not become God, capital G. The divine essence is incommunicable. Uh, There may be, in some sense, gods, but they are not God, capital G. And such a confusion of the natures would not only have been absurd to them, it would have been heretical. That which is created does not become uncreated. That which is made does not become the unmade. 
Right. That which is formed does not become the unformed or the former. Right. That which is finite does not become the infinite. Right. Humans do not become objects of worship. And so there are certain aspects of deity. Sometimes it's called the essence or the substance, the usia, uh, as it's uh, called in the Greek, the substantia in Latin. That is exclusive to deity, though by grace we can share in the divine glory or energies, the fusis, uh, the pers- uh, we maintain our persona, uh, our personhood, but we get to share in uh, that nature to some degree in some sense. Also, what's fascinating is <laughs> when you read these guys, to make their case, they, they kind of had to say everything all at once. <laughs> and so it's, it's difficult to to package everything that they were saying into one succinct phrase. Is Jesus God? Perfectly. Did the Logos take on flesh? Perfectly. Was there a third nature which arose in the one person with two natures? God forbid. And on it went. They they, they said, they, they, it was like trying to cram all of this stuff through a funnel, uh, which is what they're, they're writing, and so they do kind of come off as saying everything all at once, but they do that in order to maintain their orthodoxy, and specifically as it pertains to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The early church writers, they were working out what kind of nature would Christ need in order to be the Savior that he is. In other words, their Christology, which was situated in a Trinitarian perspective, served to inform their soteriology. Jesus saves. Yeah, but why and, and, and how? Right. Because he was one and the same God the Son, the eternal Logos of the Father, who, born of woman, even the virgin, took on flesh and died in our place. Well, if you start backing off of his perfect humanity, as Doceticism did, then... He didn't partake in humanity. And, as Gregory Nazianzen says, what is not assumed is not healed. Well, if you back off his deity, as Ebionism and Arianism did, he's a mere creature. He's unable to save. We being united to a mere creature? God forbid. If you say that the combination of the human and divine natures in a single person produced a new third nature, as Eutychianism did, well, then you are out of bounds because... Christ was then neither human nor divine. He was this third thing, whatever that is. If you say the divine aspects overwhelmed the human spirit, as Apollinarianism did, well, then you're denying the humanity of Christ again. If you separate the two natures so that they are now two persons, as Nestorianism did, you have Jesus the man, not God the Son, dying on the cross. And indeed, we need God the Son dying on the cross, in order to actually be a real, true Savior. And so all these distinctions are crucial to preserving the historical New Testament portrait of Christ as God the Son, perfect humanity, and perfect deity, who died in our place so that we might be united with him now and forever. Indeed, if God the Son, who retains his perfect deity, is not united to flesh, which is his perfect humanity, we cannot be partakers of his glorious divine nature. That's a bit of the line of argumentation that the early church writers would take on this subject. So. Right. And, and just, yeah. <laughs> and just remember, these early church writers, these early apologists, whether we're talking about Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, listen, these guys didn't have computers. 
they didn't have reference libraries that <laughs> they could right. just do like a quick search through, right? Like, like Nick and I, we don't sit down and read chapter by chapter the church fathers. Like that would take in eternity. Like we, we use them as reference resources. We search through them. We have tools that help us quickly access certain uh, passages and, and discussions. Listen, these guys didn't have that. These guys had to sit down and have access to these these kinds of documents and they had to read them and learn them and memorize them and know them like the back of their hand in order to accurately defend the christian faith the apostolic faith handed down by the apostles presented in the new testament the work that these guys went through in the ministry of the word to defend that which is true is worthy of our applause it is worthy of our respect. My goodness, these guys were something else, you know. Just imagine how much dedication that would have taken, how much work that would have taken. And so, indeed, I think they would have been driven by some sort of divine calling to do so. Their works are prolific. Uh, and, it, you know, sometimes people read these works and, like, you don't quite understand why they're saying what they're saying because we sort of forget the context in which they were saying they what they said was framed by the heresy and the debate which they had to take place in in their own day and time and so that always has to be kept in mind why are they emphasizing his humanity or his divinity or even mary's virginity all of these things that sometimes we may even find weird ourselves why are they going through such links to defend these things it's shaped and formed in the context of their own debates that they had to have in order to defend the truth in their own day and time. I think of even today, the modern movement of Christ consciousness, right? This idea that we as humanity through this new age worldview are becoming like Christ, but not through faithfulness and following of Jesus, for Jesus is just one of the ascended masters. He is like us, and he wants us to be like him. It almost sounds like theosis, but it's not, because in that view, the Christ consciousness view, Jesus is a created being who has simply evolved to a higher state of being, and he wants us to evolve with him. He is not one who first came down from the eternal state of being the uncreated creator he did not come down in their view as a demotion in order to raise us up in their view he was simply a human who became ascended just like we're humans who should become ascended and jesus like all the ascended masters will just be our brothers and there will be no distinction note that the early fathers would have never agreed to such a teaching there is always a distinction between that which is created and the creator. And Jesus Christ is the word which was in the beginning with God, was God. All things came into being through him. So that's my uh, final thought on that. Nick, do you have any final thoughts on theosis? Uh, so let's, I guess, uh, we've kind of spun out in the clouds a bit for a while, right? Let's bring it down. <laughs> to what it uh, means on the ground here. Romans 6, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And it is... Because we 
have been united with him, been buried with him, been baptized with him, um, that's when the unification began. Uh, that's when our union with Christ began. And it will culminate one day in a resurrection like his, and we'll be united with him. I like that word, united, there uh, in, in terms of this whole discussion, because that's really what it is about, is our, our uh, union with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, for all eternity. And uh, the beauty of that uh, is demonstrated, I think we've demonstrated it powerfully throughout all of Scripture uh, in this episode. Um, that's, that's where we're going. That's what I look forward to. And diligent listener, I am prayerful that you too are looking forward to it as well. And that union, that oneness, is not a Brahmin or Eastern mystic idea. It's not a Hinduism oneness where we uh, fade into, or Buddhism oneness where we fade into uh, the universe, into oneness, into nirvana. It's not that. That's not the oneness that we're talking about. We're talking about the oneness in purpose and in family and in our sharing of glory. And so it is the the mark of a good father to want to share his sovereignty and his glory with his children. And that's exactly what our God and Father has done for us through Jesus Christ. And he wants for us still before his return in which uh, we will be revealed for who we are as the sons of God. Not because we've been given a divine Gnostic spark. We've been specially chosen as starseed. That's not it. It's because that offer was given to all of humanity all of humans uh, can can come to this promise, can become citizens of heaven. All they have to do is simply put their loyalty and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and he will lead us as a good shepherd to his Father. We will be made children of God by his will, not by uh, some special spark that was placed only in certain people. It's not exclusive. It's actually inclusive. God desires for all to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. So that's my last thought, Nick. My second last thought, I guess. I don't know. My third last thought. <laughs> yeah, the other one was the penultimate. That's the ultimate, yeah. That's right. Well, let's uh, remind our audience of what they can do to help the podcast. Go into the uh, Apple Podcast uh, store and subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, just search Swordplay there in the podcast store. Uh, Leave a review. uh, Rate the podcast. uh, That'll help boost us in that particular location. And if you leave a written review, we will read it on air for you. Uh, So one of the things we want to do, this is the conclusion of Season 3, for Season 4... We want to kick things off with a swordplay Q&A. And for that, we need you, diligent listener, to submit questions. And you can do that in a couple of ways. One is through the swordplay text line. You can text in a question to 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Uh, or you can email those questions in. Right, Alex? Email them to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com that's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we have some questions coming in we've received them and we are saving them up for season four so keep sending your questions we do see them we will answer them 
thank you for listening and thank you for hanging in there with us not only on an hour and a half episode on theosis which uh, you know considering the topic you know it's not too bad right under hour and a half uh, but also hanging in there with us for another entire season of swordplay we're looking forward to coming back uh in a few months with season four we have some some new things in store for you and again, we appreciate your support of the podcast just by listening, by opening your Bible and studying it, uh, by sharing it with others as well and using it in your own uh, dive into the scriptures. And so that's what we made this for. It's a reference work uh, to, to use at your, at your own leisure. And I think that's it, Nick. Any final notes from you? See you in season four. See you in season four. All right, well, thanks for tuning in to Swordplay, your double edged perspective on scripture.